Welcome, welcome. Are you a good storyteller? I'm not so sure whether I am, but I do like to try. Today's message about God's stories uses three different lectionary texts to tell the story or to set up the story that I tell. So I do read the story of the Transfiguration, but if you want the background, check out Exodus 24 verses 12 through 18 and Psalm 99. Those texts will get you ready for this message called God Stories. As always, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. Thanks for listening. Listen for the voice of God as we hear the familiar story of Christ's transfiguration from Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Would you pray with me? Holy God, change us through the voice of your word. Make us attentive listeners, wise disciples, and faithful followers. Where you lead, we will follow. Amen. The best God stories happen on the top of mountains. The first year that Rain went to mission camp at Laurel Ridge, the project was a deck to be painted for a home that provided shelter to single mothers and young pregnant women who did not have a home on the top of one of the mountains in Ashe County. Rain said that there was a bird's nest tucked under the railing of the deck that they were painting. So each day when the group went to the job site to begin work, they'd check on the birds who were living in the nest. And every evening when they gathered back at camp, the leaders would ask, Who has a God story to share? Or where did you see God today? And someone would mention the nest and its feathered residents. Those young people saw God in a bird's nest on top of a mountain. In the first story that we heard this morning from the book of Exodus, God calls Moses up on a mountain, and Moses brings Joshua with him. The two men are called into a God story hidden from view from behind the veil of a cloud. God gives the tablets of the law to Moses, which God has written with God's own hand. And the clouds cover the mountain, and for six days the story proceeds out of our view and away from our hearing. But on the seventh day God speaks, and the Israelites saw God in a devouring fire, a story that they repeated time after time on the top of a mountain. And the psalm we heard also tells of God's stories from the tops of mountains. Singing the praise of the God of the mountain, the psalmist recounts the familiar stories of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. The singer reminds us that this God of the top of the mountain is holy, 
un unlike anything or anyone we have ever known or could know, unique and full of justice and equity and forgiveness. Recounting stories of forgiveness and of justly making the wrong things right, the psalmist reminds us that we are only to worship God at His holy mountain. For not only is God holy, but this mountain is unlike anything we have ever experienced. The setting of another God story. And thus we come to the gospel text from today's reading of the Transfiguration. And not surprisingly, we find Jesus prepared to reveal himself once more and the ultimate God story to Peter, James, and John from the top of a mountain. Where was this Mount of Transfiguration and what made it so special? Well, according to the commentaries I've consulted this week, we don't really know for sure where the Mount of Transfiguration was located, but there are several possibilities, each one with a unique God story connected to it in a way that illuminates the story in a different way. No matter where this story happened, its power to change folks from doubtful skeptics to confident believers has remained true. That's what God stories do. They change us. Maybe the Mount of Transfiguration is the most traditionally identified location, Mount Tabor. The first time this location is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible is in the book of Joshua, as the juxtaposition of the location of three Hebrew tribes, Zebulon, Issachar, and Naphtali. But its geographical location isn't as interesting as the stories themselves that come from Mount Tabor. In the book of Judges, the Canaanites come against the Israelites of a military campaign under the leadership of a commander named Sisera, with a military armed with the strength of 900 iron chariots. But the judge, named Deborah, orders the Israelite army to meet the challenge at Mount Tabor, sending a commander of her own who was named Barak from the tribe of Naphtali to meet the foe. Barak is frightened of the enemy, or perhaps just wisely disposed to seek the support of a more seasoned military leader in Deborah, and so he asks her to go with him into the battle. She does so, leading an army of 10,000 men who soundly defeat the Canaanites, all except for their leader, that is, Sisera, who flees on foot to the tent of a woman named Jael. Sisera begs hospitality from Jael, who gives him something to drink, but then drives a tent stake through his temple while the great military leader is sleeping from the exhaustion of the battle. When Barak arrives, Jael shows him the body of the dead military leader, and the story is repeated and told over and over again, most notably in the next chapter of Judges, Judges chapter 5, when Deborah sings of the courage of Jael and the conquest of the Canaanites of the righteousness of Israel's God at Mount Tabor. Or perhaps the Mount of Transfiguration is Mount Hermon, the snow-capped mountain that represents the border between Lebanon and Syria, the highest peak in all of ancient Israel. Maybe our Lord revealed himself there, and maybe the sights of the well-worn paths were familiar to Moses and Elijah. Maybe they retold stories of the myths of the fallen angels who were said to have descended to earth upon Mount Hermon in the apocryphal stories. Or maybe not. But either way, these mountains make for some pretty good stories, don't they? And God's stories don't just change us. They also comfort us. And they compel us. Sometimes they do all three at the same time. I'd like to close our time together with a story one of my favorite God stories. 
And this story is one that in my life does all three of those things. It changes me. It changes the way I think about God. It comforts me when I remember how much God loves me. And it compels me to live in light of my understanding of who God is. One more mountaintop God story. Sometime around 2004, I think, my brother Mitchell, who is now deceased, was coming home from New York. Mitch lived in Queens, but he came home as often as he could, and he was my absolute best friend in the whole wide world. We were eight years apart in age, but people who knew us said that we were like twins born eight years apart. And Mitch coming home was really exciting for me because I loved being with him. Now, my brother also had a fascination with trains. And I can remember being really young and visiting the North Carolina Transportation Museum in Spencer with him and riding the train for a dollar around the museum. Or even once standing on the turntable and riding it in the days when things like that were exciting for an eight-year-old. But anyway, Mitch's fascination with trains convinced him on this particular trip that coming home on the train was a good idea. He booked a ticket with Amtrak, packed his bags, and boarded the train at Grand Central, St Grand Central Station in New York planning to get into Greensboro with an arrival time around 9 p.m. The trip itself was going great until somewhere around Washington, D.C., when Mitch got off the train for a minute to smoke while the train was stopped at a local depot. He left his notebook and wallet on the tray table and his backpack in the empty seat beside him, only when he went back to reboard the train, it was gone. There's nothing like getting a collect call from your big brother who's stuck in Washington, D.C. with an alternate plan to get home thanks to, an helpful, to a helpful Amtrak booking agent. They rerouted him through Rocky Mount, North Carolina, with a new arrival time of something like 2.30 a.m. But with no cash, no cell phone, no wallet, and no resources, Mitch had absolutely no way to get from Rocky Mount to Yadkinville except for his favorite baby sister, who wound up leaving home somewhere around midnight to get to the train station in Rocky Mount on time. And here's the crazy thing about this God story. Everything that I've just told you up to this point is the good part of the story. The trip to Rocky Mount actually went really well. I filled up with gas at the gas station before heading out so I knew I wouldn't need to stop, jammed along with some music on the way down the road, and when I got to the train station, I even found Mitch pretty quickly in the depot. Thankfully, Amtrak offered to have his backpack and other belongings taken off the train in Greensboro, and we were just planning to pick them up later. Like I said, I love being with my big brother, so I wasn't even dreading that long ride back home. <laughs> Until somewhere on the dark back road of rural North Carolina, not too awfully far outside Rocky Mount, we hit something. A big something and the tire on my car immediately went flat. I still don't know what we hit, but surrounded by pig farms, we always jokingly said it was probably a runaway pig. When I looked back on the road where we had come from, there was nothing there, and there was absolutely no blood, so I still to this day have no idea what we hit, whether it was an animal or something else. And as much as I loved my big brother, we were both pretty young and not very inclined to have any clue how to change a flat tire. Plus, it was the middle of the night, somewhere around 3.30 in the morning, not the best time to try to learn such a skill. I had my cell phone, but no AAA, and nobody we knew lived anywhere nearby, so who was I going to call anyway? 
Mitch and I sat in the car for a few minutes, first trying to figure out what to do and then laughing hysterically at the situation that had put us in the middle of a nowhere back road with a flat tire, him with nothing but half a pack of cigarettes and a lighter, me with a full tank of gas but no clue how to use a jack or put on a spare tire. We made quite a scene that night. And then, of course, there was the pig that we hit. Not having a clue what to do and having not passed a single car in the previous 45 minutes or so of the drive, we were both really surprised when an old dark brown late 70s or early 80s model El Camino pulled up behind us. Y'all remember the El Camino? It was like a car but had a bed like a pickup truck. And so anyway, we were both starting to get a little scared because we were kind of thinking about being axe murdered out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. But then we saw this little man get out of the El Camino and walk up to our window and immediately we were both at ease. The man was an older black guy with gray hair and coveralls or some other kind of work outfit that had his name across the chest and I don't think it was a name, maybe it was even just a business, but he was not at all frightening. I rolled down my window and he immediately asked if we were having car trouble. Yes sir, I said, we hit something and neither one of us knows how to change a tire. I'd like to think the man wasn't laughing at us as he walked back to his car and pulled out a toolbox and a nice shop quality jack, but I can only imagine what he was thinking. Without asking any questions or judgment or saying anything else, he knelt down by the side of my car and started to work. Mitchell immediately jumped out and asked if he could help. Nah, the man said, just give me a minute. Helplessly, my brother and I held hands on the side of the road and watched this mysterious man work. He pulled the spare from my trunk, switched the tire out, and told us we needed to get to Walmart, which was just maybe three or four miles up ahead. I dug through my pockets and wallet, pulling out any spare change from the doors, from the console, and single dollar bills that were stuck weird places in my car, trying desperately just to come up with enough to make it seem like we weren't some hillbilly hoodlums out joyriding. But the best I could come up with was around $8. I gave it to Mitch, who thanked the man over and over and over, and asked if there was any way we could repay him. Nah, the man said. Have a good night. I pulled out first, and the El Camino was behind me until we got to Walmart. And when we got there, he drove away, just as mysteriously as he had appeared. We got the tire changed, and made it home safely around 7 or 8 in the morning. And you might be wondering what it is about this story that could possibly make it a God story. But here's how. The story changed me. It made me aware of how much kindness an older black man had to have in his heart to stop on the side of the road for a very obviously gay white guy and a white woman. And it compels me. This story compels me to check on folks who have flat tires every single time, to look at them with compassion and to wonder if they're okay, to figure out how I can offer to do something to help and what I could do to show the same love of God in their lives that this man showed in mine. Most of all, though, this story comforts me. My brother died in 2010 at 37 years old. And when Mitch left, it was these stories, these silly stories about hitting a pig in Rocky Mount in the middle of the night and having our tire changed by some mysterious angel of a man. It was those stories that comfort me because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was God who sent that man to help us change that tire. Or who knows, maybe the man was our Lord himself in human form, the incarnation of a loving parent who will never leave us alone. And either way, 
With or without any of these wonderings, I'm comforted and forever grateful for this God story because it reminds me that the same God who cared about me not knowing how to change a tire in the middle of the night cared enough for my big brother. And in 2010, he gathered Mitchell to himself and will now never, ever leave him alone. What a powerful story. My challenge to you is simple. What God story changes you? What God story compels you? What God story comforts you? Will you share it with someone? Would you consider maybe telling your story or writing it down or even just calling it to mind and praying that God might bring new light into your life through this powerful mountaintop story? Whether it's Mount Sinai or Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon or the mountain on top of Laurel Ridge or even Rocky Mount, North Carolina. The best God stories happen on the tops of mountains. Amen.